Hey, it's Andrew and Ed here from the Property Academy podcast. Just before we get into these podcasts with Ilsa, just want to mention that these were actually recorded before the government's tax changes. Now, that actually makes them more relevant. And to talk about how to beat the government's tax changes by cash flow hacking your property portfolio, we are hosting a webinar with Ilsa. I'm going to drop a link to that in the show notes. But until then, enjoy the podcast. Welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And today on the show, we are very pleased to have Elsa Wolf joining us. Elsa, welcome along to the show. Thank you very much. Now, this has been a very, very long time coming. I would say that you were the first fan of the show, I would say. Uh, I think I think you'll have a very upset Manuel saying that. No, 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 because before we had Manuel and Joy messaging us and getting really into the podcast, we had Elsa messaging us on Instagram. Really? And I remember, Elsa, you told us a story that because you're a very active property investor, you've started your own kind of property investment group where you've got a group of friends in Silverdale who all invest and are interested in this. And you said, I feel like I finally found some property investment friends. <laughs> <laughs> found the people. Which was fantastic. And so I'm so pleased to have you on the show, not just because you're a long-time fan, but now we're starting a business together, helping people renovate properties and pursue a very active strategy. So I'm interested in hearing your story, and we're going to do a couple of shows talking about how you've got into property investment. Let's jump into it. So give us an overview of your portfolio and what, you, what you've what you invested in so far. Okay, sure. I'm a really results-orientated person. I prefer to talk in terms of total assets. So our, our current portfolio is valued around $12 million at the moment. We've taken the opportunity with the growth in the market recently to sell down a couple of our lesser productive properties so that we're poised to really go for that next round of growth. I find talking about number of properties is yeah. somewhat arbitrary when we're looking at you know where we're trying to get to. It doesn't really measure much for me. And so tell me the properties that you've been thinking or that you've sold down, what was the trigger to actually decide which were the ones that weren't performing as well as the ones you wanted to keep? The stage that we're in at the moment is we're trying to what I call cash flow hack. So I'm really trying to extract as much income out of every property we have. What I do is every year an annual review, I guess, of where our property portfolio stands. I try to cull at least one asset each time. So what's our least productive asset that's pulling the property portfolio down. Who was the guy, the businessman, was it Ford, the dealership that had the policy that they'd always get rid of the bottom 10%? No, you're talking about GE. That was Jack Welch from GE and they fired the bottom 10% of people every year. But what I want to (laughs) know... Which actually reminds me, we need to have a uh, HR discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Now tell me this also, what I want to know is what's your metric for figuring out what is your least productive asset? Because Mm. sometimes there will be assets within your portfolio that might look initially unproductive like if it hasn't gone up in value or it's had a particularly poor year because of a lot of expenses. Like, mm. How do you figure out whether something is unproductive because there was just a bit of a blip on the radar or whether actually that's the yeah. one that needs to go? Well, to be fair, over time, I've been an investor for about 14 years now. And to be fair, that criteria has changed as we've gone through different growth phases. We're really in our growth stage, if I use your plant yes. analogy. yes. You're growers. We're growers. We're growers. We're really focused on yield or cash flow, passive income for us to use personally. We've gone through our capital gains growth phase and really looking for that cash flow. So that's really what I'm focusing on at the moment. Cool. So you had the strategy of getting as much growth as possible to put you in a good equity position. Mm -hmm. Now you're wanting to kind of almost transition into that yield-based portfolio. Exactly. That's what we call the harvesters stage. So you've moved quite quickly (laughs) there, which is fantastic. Usually a harvester would be 20 years older than you currently are. 
far at least. But what I'm interested in is you said where before. So talk to us about who's in your team. Who are you investing with? Oh, okay. So it's myself and my fiance Taylor. I'm very much the one who's super all things property. I know the adage is that you should you know, look at the numbers and not get emotional about property. I completely am a hybrid. Um, <laughs> I'm super passionate. I'll chew the ear off anyone who wants to speak about property. I should probably pair it back more than anything. But Tay seldom ever goes to a site to see right. a property. He's interested in the numbers. I sense check all of our numbers and our buying decisions by him. But other than that, he doesn't turn up to site unless it's to smash up some walls with some friends. And so how did you actually get into investing in property? What was the catalyst to get you investing? I've always had an interest in property investment. As I was growing up, it was more on the design side, so the architectural. I was a graphic student. As a kid, I was a super nerd. I used to call up the 0800 numbers pretending to be an adult and request the jerk packets. <laughs> oh, what? Are you requesting the what? Request the product information packages so I could get samples. I saw this on your note, and I had a bit of a laugh as we are on our way here about this. So you'd ring up the 0800 number, say, oh, I'm looking at designing a house in a 12-year-old's voice, and then Ed, you're probably better at doing that. Is that, that right? Day. So, hi, I'm, I'm, my name's Elsa. <laughs> I was like, hi, my name is Ilsa. And yeah, so I would pretend to be an adult. And what they didn't realize is I was mocking up floor plans by hand on my lounge coffee table. <laughs> so I would wait so for, for, the, for your dream house. For all sorts of, I would, I would sit there and design floor plans. That's, that's, that's so great. good. I love it. So that was the first step. That then evolved into a financial interest. So actually, after I completed university, one of my earlier jobs was working for one of the major New Zealand banks. That's when the financial interest in property investment peaked. What I very quickly noticed was that all of my corporate clients had a plethora of different yes. products of you know, either commercial properties, residential properties, and they were either the backing for their businesses yes. or they were so successful in business that they were able to buy these incredible properties. So either way, I started to attach property investment to wealth and financial freedom. So were your parents into property? Did they act as any kind of inspiration for it? No, actually, I didn't have that type of background growing Mm -hmm. up. I think quite similar to you Mm. from what I've heard, Andrew, on the podcast. Really, it was through my first role working for one of the major banks that I started to think, wow, I'm missing some financial literacy here. Don't worry, everyone is. Yeah. (laughs) And I was really lucky. A client of ours at the bank was a director of an accounting firm, and he took me through one of on his lunch break. He said, "Come and see me, and I'll take you through some of the stuff." So he showed me through a profit and loss on one of his investment properties, and that was the trigger for me. I thought, "Wow, wow you know the, the tax efficiency." Hey, great that an accountant's actually investing in property. Other than Matt Harris, <laughs> I don't really know many accountants that do it because oh, they're also no. so Oh, sorry, That's Peter. Unfair. We've Peter had a list of well. top five property accountants, including Peter. <laughs> now, one thing we need to disclose just before we finish this as well is though that you. You did have a very nice upbringing and, and probably the best part of the country. You're actually ganged up what, here. Andrew. Yes, she is from oh, Taranaki. Another one. <laughs> Elsa's so polished to come out of there. I mean, you oh. you are much less polished. <laughs> Everybody in the South Taranaki, New Plymouth, and Stratford districts are going to be. That we're going to pull out our pitchforks and march our way to Christchurch to go find knock on Andrew Nichols' door. You can't be saying that, mate. Now, come on, Elsa. Was your first one in your Plymouth or what was your first property that you got? Well, the first property was in Glenview and Hamilton, actually while I was on that job because I was so inspired by this client. So in Glenview, Hamilton, at the time it actually was not that much of an informed decision. I've been very lucky with it because it's had several rounds of development opportunity, but that was a pure fluke. Mm. Yeah. How did you choose it? I did get the idea that through a home and income approach, actually, I wanted it to stand on its own two feet, but actually, I didn't know how to go about that. I ended up having quite a few issues with it to start with. Okay. 
Interesting. We're going to get into that as well. But then you've made this transitioning into becoming a full-time property investor. What's the catalyst for that? Yeah. Well, aside from not understanding through a salaried role why why that salary wouldn't last the full month I was being paid for, I thought there, <laughs> there has to be a better way to do this. I really enjoyed property. In 2015, actually, I was living overseas. I actually suddenly lost my mum, sorry, which was a catalyst for me to come home. And I came back, interviewed for, for a few corporate roles, but I, I found that I just kept self-sabotaging. I was being offered these, you know, great salaries, great jobs. I just could not connect. Your heart wasn't in it. My heart wasn't in it. And I thought, you know, just through that experience with my mother, she'd worked through a well-paid salaried role her entire life. She finished work on the Friday and passed away on the Sunday and I felt right. like she was really robbed of being yes. able to enjoy all of the you know the fruition of all her hard work. Yeah. So for me, I decided not to take one of those roles. In fact, I picked up the property investor mag. This was I think September 2015. And they ran a case study on a woman who flipped a house in Mangare Bridge. So flipping, she bought the house, she did a, ran a two-month renovation, and then she popped it back on the market. While I wasn't interested in flipping, I looked through the profit and loss that was published in the bag, and I thought, I'm sure I could do this. So I put the mag in front of Taylor, and I said, look, I think I want to give this a go. What do you think? And he sat there, and I could see him holding up the mag. He was just nodding away, reading, nodding, nodding. He said, yeah, let's do it. So we were lucky. He had 50% share in a property with his sister. We ended up selling her, her the other 50%, to fund our first renovation. Awesome. The amazing thing about that story is so many people come to us on the podcast or in real life and talk about how do I get my partner on board. And it's amazing that he reads one article and is like, yeah, sweet, let's do it. I love it. Yeah. So let's talk about that first renovation. Walk us through where was it? What did you pay for it? How much did you spend on that reno? And what was it worth at the end? So at that point, I decided, you know, got the finance sorted and I'm very determined. So the first weekend I went out looking at open homes, bought a property. <laughs> and my assumption at the time was from that old adage, you know, look for the worst house. Yeah, um, yeah, I didn't necessarily know which suburbs to look in or how to define where I should look. But being in Auckland at this point, I looked around South Auckland suburbs and the price points that we could afford. We bought this place in Mangare. It was a shockingly run-down place, barely inhabitable. Mm. I don't know how it was tenanted, but it was, sadly. Healthy homes didn't exist back then? No, no. And this needed everything doing. My theory at the time, or my philosophy was, if I look for the worst possible house, surely it has the hugest upside yeah. from it. So yeah, I'll make the best. It, yeah. A yeah. great theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And at the time, you know, I hadn't really known how to look at the numbers, but what I did know was was smart enough to organise the pre-settlement access. So during the two-month pre-settlement stage, um, I was able to get tradesmen in there, you know, get quotes for the carpet, yeah. the curtains, the arborist. Makes a huge difference. And so yeah. just for anyone that doesn't understand how that works, so this is where you'll have settlement in, say, two months' time. You pay your deposit, but then you can go in and do renovations, which obviously works if there's no one living in the property. So you don't have those holding costs, which is really, really useful in a buy and renovate strategy. Yeah, and so many managed to get all of those quotes underway so I could select the jobs and then on day one we picked up the keys and boom got straight into that renovation. Now because I was not from the industry I just needed to learn and absorb as much as I could. I was really fortunate to have a builder who mentored me through that process. So for Every single day of that summer, 2016, I roped in my brother. We renovated, so all of the jobs you can imagine, like sanding the weatherboards back down to reprime bog, reprime and paint. We worked 7am till 5pm every single day for that three months. 
so that I could learn exactly how the renovation process needed to mm-hmm. work in sequence mm-hmm. and therefore how each trade contributed to it. I had no prior knowledge of that industry. What I've now, in reminiscing, gone back to look at the old photos, I, I really realised what my builder meant by saying, you've bitten off a huge uh, project <laughs> here. And I've calculated that if we actually had employed someone to do the work <laughs> my brother and I did, it would have added another $50,000 to our over <laughs> costly renovation budget yeah. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was the purchase price on it? Do you remember? So we bought that property for five hundred and twenty-five thousand. Yep. That was at the end of two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. I spent eighty-five thousand dollars on that oh, renovation. That's a big project. Yeah. Plus the sweat equity, which yep. remember that cost about fifty thousand if we were to pay someone. The property valued up at seven hundred thousand. Okay. I. I did a couple of things that I really shouldn't have done. Yep, what were your your biggest mistakes? (laughs) The windows were quite shoddy, and rather than look to fix a couple of these timber windows, I went and ordered a full suite of double-glazed aluminium joinery, which cost about 15000 at the time. And on top of that, for some reason, I thought that if we insulated and relined the garage and then added internet cabling and oh, right. <laughs> fully equipped the uh, the garage that it would add immense value to this yeah, property. Yeah. Mm. How um, did you come to that decision that you're like, this is, is going to be I, the value I, These added. are just the things that you learn when you're starting out on any buy, renovate um, strategy. I don't know how you get them, but they, these are the things that I did as well. Like, you know, try and get every last dollar out of yield. Yeah, and you think that every dollar you put in yeah, is going yeah. to create another three oh, or There was dollars. one that I had a hexagonal room in, and we were going to put a wall up in the middle of it so that we could separate it because it's such a big room. We could t- make it into two rooms. Like, ridiculous. Now, rather than being a horrible hexagonal room, it was going to be whatever the hell a half hexagonal yeah, <laughs> triangular rooms yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And also, I remember you were telling me about the valuer offline. Yes. So I followed him around like a bad smell when he came to check out this um, completed renovation. I think I knew in my gut that I had overcapitalized. But anyway, I followed him around and he looked around. I was very enthusiastically explaining, look, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And he turned around and said, I think you've overspent on this renovation. And I thought, what do you mean? He said, how much have you spent? I said, about 85000 He said, okay, so you've, you've spent about over 20% of what you, you paid for this property. Yeah. And then what did you rent it out for at the end? We were very lucky, actually. Mid-renovation, the neighbour from three doors down had been looking for a property so that she could stay close to her mother. So we put a fairly decent price on it at the time, five seventy a week for a three-bedroom renovated property in Mangadei. And we're really fortunate that same tenant has been there ever since. Wow. Do you manage that yourself? No. Absolutely not. Uh, (laughs) I learned through that grind that while it's great to be hands-on and learn a lot, pay the professionals, I would never pretend to understand the complex legalities of property management these days. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey... If you want to learn more about renovations, then come along to our next webinar. That's right, in April, we are doing a full webinar on how to run the Burr strategy. That is buying, renovating, and then holding. Ilsa's going to be joining us for that. And we're also going to be introducing for the first time this new service that we're starting to help out people who are taking an active strategy. Now, I'm going to drop a link for that in the bio, so tap or swipe over the cover art. There'll be a link in there. Or... Just go to opuspartners.co.nz. You'll be able to sign up there. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Eben Knight. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.